Mormonism. What do Mormons believe? Are they Christian? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Dr. Pat Zucharin. Recently, Pat invited Dr. Ron Rhodes to address Mormonism at a conference in Hawaii. Today, you'll hear part one of that presentation. And it's crucial resources like these that we offer at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's articles, books, interviews with leading scholars, and past programs available for download on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, Pat presents Dr. Ron Rhodes on Mormonism. I'm gonna talk a little bit about Mormons, and I wanna introduce the subject by pointing to the high visibility of many Mormons in the media. I'm thinking, for example, about the many interviews that Larry King has done with such individuals as uh, President Hinckley, or the late President Hinckley, of the Mormon Church. Uh, as most of you know, the president of the Mormon Church is the prophet of the church, so he continues to speak for God. Uh, you've also got Mitt Romney, and of course, uh, one of the things that took place with Mitt Romney was a big debate as to uh, whether Christians should vote for him in view of the fact that he has many conservative values. And so this became a a hot potato issue. Uh, books were written, articles were written, many television shows were done addressing this issue, but it certainly brought Mormonism to the forefront of our, our, our thoughts. And then, of course, there was the famous interview with Joel Osteen, who said that Mormons are Christians. After all, Mormons do believe Jesus is Lord. And, of course, this is one of the things that uh, shows the complex issue that's before us, because on the one hand, Mormons do talk about Jesus as Lord, but we have to understand that their concept of what it means for Jesus to be Lord is a different concept than what we believe the Bible teaches. On the issue. And so we're going to look at that today. And I think that we'll see that Mormons are not Christians in the sense that uh, the Bible defines them. And by the way, this is not to be mean-spirited. It's really not. I'm always real careful to define the word cult when I'm talking about the subject. And, and like uh, Norm pointed out, a, a, a cult is a group that generally claims to be Christian, but in fact denies one or more of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And certainly when you look at what the Mormons teach about God and Jesus and so forth, they would fit that definition. So the word cult is not intended to be pejorative or mean-spirited. It is a theological definition. And uh, I, I just want that to be real clear because I have no interest in attacking someone's beliefs. It's all about talking about the important essentials of Christianity with the goal of winning people to the true Lord who preaches the true gospel. Uh, after all, doesn't it make sense that if you have a counterfeit Jesus that preaches a counterfeit gospel, you've got a counterfeit salvation? Right? I mean, that's what motivates me to do what I'm doing. Uh, there are some people who say, well, why can't we just love everybody? And the fact is, is that if by that you mean don't share the truth, and that person dies and goes into eternity without Jesus, how loving were you? If I've got the truth that leads to eternal life, and I fail to share that with someone who desperately needs to hear it, how loving is that? In fact, love compels me to speak. It is what drives me to do what I do. And of course, there was American Idol. Uh, this became a big controversy because David Archuleta and Brooke White were both Mormons. And so the big, big debate that erupted on the Internet is, should you vote for a Mormon for American Idol? Donnie and Marie, of course, hopped in, giving their opinions. And all the while, Mormonism is the in the forefront of people's thoughts on all of this. Certainly, there have been many best-selling authors who have been Mormons. Uh, here's a book that sold over 15 million copies, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. In terms of the uh, statistics on Mormonism, it's pretty impressive when you look at it. The church takes in $4.7 billion per year. Their investment portfolio is over $1 billion. They've got land holdings in all 50 states. They spend $550 million per year on missionary efforts. Now, how many of you have seen some of the, the TV commercials that the Mormons have done? They're actually pretty good, aren't they? In that they look like they're very professionally done. And typically, you might have a pretty lady who says, we like the Bible, we also like the Book of Mormon, we'd like you to have a free copy of the Book of Mormon. They might offer a free video or a free tape, you know. 
And uh, so people love free stuff, so they call in, give their name and address. Instead of coming through the mail, however, it's generally delivered by two Mormon missionaries with the goal of winning that person into the Mormon church. And by that strategy, they're taking in about 1,500 people per day into the Mormon church. Today, there's 60,000 full-time Mormon missionaries converting 300,000 people per year. If the current rates continue, in 15 years, there will be 110,000 full-time Mormon missionaries converting 670,000 people per year. In 50 years, assuming that current rates continue, there will be 400,000 full-time Mormon missionaries converting 2.5 million per year. Now, here's something to think about. If the current rates continue, then somewhere in the next 15 to 20 years, and assuming that our current growth in Protestant and Catholic missionaries remains the same, then in 15 to 20 years, Mormon missionaries who are involved in full-time service will outnumber combined Protestant and Catholic missionaries together. This is something that uh, I think that people should take seriously, uh, and especially for those of us who are into defending the truth of Christianity. It's something that ought to be considered seriously. I want to give a little bit of brief historical in insights in terms of where the church came from, how it developed, how it emerged, and uh, then I'm going to hop into some of the doctrines that Mormons believe. But I think that you really can't divorce the Mormon church from its history. I want to begin by pointing out that when Joseph Smith founded Mormonism, one of the very interesting things is that he addressed some of the Enlightenment criticisms against Christianity. Now, you know, back during the Enlightenment, reason was the big thing, human reason. And one of the problems that some of the people back then had against Christianity was the idea that there were some saved people and some lost people, some elect unto salvation while others were not elect unto salvation. So what does Joseph Smith do? Well, he comes up with a system in which there are three kingdoms of glory, the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the telestial kingdom. And everybody goes to one of the three. So he really kind of addressed one of the criticisms against Christianity. Uh, also, what about uh, unevangelized people? You know, the idea that there might be some people in some distant part of the world who has not heard the gospel, and if they die, they go into eternity without Christ and therefore are unsaved. This is another criticism that some people in the Enlightenment had against Christianity. Joseph Smith met that need, too, because you can actually continue to become a believer in the afterlife or in post-mortality. And if you become a believer in post-mortality, you're allowed to progress on to the road to exaltation so long as somebody gets baptized on your behalf, which is the baptism for the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, which speaks about that. Uh, also, the issue of babies. You know, there were some back during uh, Enlightenment times that held that if a baby died, it could either go into a limbo status or maybe God might look down through the corridors of time and determine whether or not that baby would have believed. And if the baby didn't believe, then the baby would be damned. And if the baby did believe, then it would be saved. There was criticism against that. And so uh, Joseph Smith comes up with the idea that uh, there's no original sin. So when babies are born, they don't, they're not born into the world with original sin. And besides, uh, the age of accountability is eight years old. So there's no problem there. And besides that, everybody goes to one of three kingdoms. So this is no longer a problem either. And so my point to you is is that uh, it's just very interesting to observe that when he put together this system of theology, he did meet a lot of the uh, Enlightenment criticisms against Christianity, of course, but in the process he distorted Scripture, and we're going to see that today. Anyway, uh, Smith was considering which denomination to join, according to Mormon history. You know, should he join the Methodists or the Baptists or the Presbyterians? Who should he join? And he was not sure, and so he was uh, reading through James 1.5, and James 1.5 talks about if you lack wisdom, ask God and he will give you wisdom. That started things off. And then there's the first vision. According to uh, Mormon history, the father and the son appeared to Joseph Smith, and the son said all the churches were corrupt, and their creeds were an abomination. Therefore, Joseph Smith should not join the Baptists or the Methodists or the Presbyterians or any other denomination, but uh, ultimately he would restore the true church on earth. 
there was an angel by the name of Moroni who appeared about three years later. Joseph Smith had been in bed praying, and right in the midst of his prayers, this angel appears to Joseph Smith and informs him that there were some gold plates and some seer stones. And these were allegedly built, uh, buried at Hill Cumorah. I was there not long ago. So up on this hill is where the, uh, the gold plates were allegedly buried. This is a very popular uh, Mormon tourist attraction. And uh, Smith allegedly translated the Book of Mormon. Now I want you to notice something today. As you look at this piece of art, Mormon art, it looks like uh, Joseph Smith is kind of looking down at the plates and uh, reading it out loud as the uh, scribe is writing down the words of Joseph Smith, but that's not the way Mormon history actually portrays it. The way that uh, Mormon history has it is that Joseph Smith took the, uh, the seer stones and, and put it into the hat, and he brought his face down into the hat, and as he did so, one character would mystically appear at a time, and he would read that one character or one letter out loud, and the scribe would write it down. Letter by letter by letter, the Book of Mormon was allegedly translated in this way. Now, I just want you to keep that in mind because when a translation is done one letter at a time, that does not allow for mistakes. Just keep that on the back burner for now. Uh, also keep in mind that when Joseph Smith completed his work, he allegedly heard a voice which said, this has been translated by the power of God, and this is a correct translation. And, uh, you know, I'm giving you this information because it's going to become important later as we examine the Book of Mormon. Uh, number four, the burning in the bosom. This is something that's actually found in Doctrine and Covenants 9, verse 8. And it says this, Behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. So it's an experience that you have. You read the Book of Mormon, and you're expecting it to be confirmed somehow by an experience. Of course, the immediate danger that I would point out to people is that having studied many, many cults and false religions, including world religions, uh, very often experience comes into the picture. And when experience comes into the picture, the, uh, the field is wide open to believe just about anything. And so this is not really a test for truth because there are people who, for example, will join the Baha'i faith because they get the feeling that Baha'u'llah, the prophet, was correct in what he said. Uh, there were followers of uh, Rajneesh, the sex guru, who said that they experienced a sense that this guy was the incarnation of God on earth. You see, so experience is not a test for truth. But nevertheless, Mormons will continue to ask you to pray about the Book of Mormon, expecting it to be confirmed by a burning in the bosom. Well, eventually the one true church emerges, and uh, this was under Joseph Smith's leadership in 1830. started with just six people in upstate New York, and uh, not unexpectedly, Joseph Smith became the church's seer and prophet and apostle. He was in charge. One of the very interesting things about Mormonism is the teaching that the true church must have the priesthoods. Without the priesthoods, there can be no church. So, for example, uh, we read in Mormon history that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were praying in the woods one day when all of a sudden John the Baptist shows up and he confers upon them the Aaronic priesthood. Sometime later, the biblical Peter and James and John conferred the Melchizedek priesthood on them. Now, I must tell you before moving on further that I find this extremely problematic in many ways. To begin, we know, for example, that the Aaronic priesthood was to go to the descendants of Aaron. We cannot say that everybody who is a member of the Mormon church is a descendant of Aaron. It simply is not so. Uh, but uh, according to the Old Testament, if you look at, for example, Numbers chapter 3, uh, Leviticus 18, and some of those kind of passages, it's very clear that the Aaronic priesthood was to go to the descendants of Aaron. And it's also interesting that to look at the, the, uh, the rituals and the ceremonies members of the Aaronic priesthood went through in order to be confirmed in the priesthood. You see none of those in the Mormon church. And besides, this priesthood passed away with the coming of Jesus Christ. And so there, there is to be no priesthood today. Jesus himself is our high priest. 
Now that brings us to the Melchizedek priesthood. I would like for anyone, anywhere, to point me to a single verse which says that Peter, James, and John even possessed the Melchizedek priesthood. Is it not clear beyond comprehension, especially in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, that this priesthood belongs to one alone, and that is Jesus Christ, the divine Messiah? In fact, Hebrews 7.24 tells us in no uncertain terms that this is an unchangeable priesthood, and the Greek word used there means literally untransferable. It belongs to Jesus alone, and it cannot be transferred to anyone else. And so for this idea that a young Mormon boy could have the Melchizedek priesthood bestowed upon him, after which time he is then in authority over his mother, is beyond comprehension. Jesus is our only Melchizedek priest. There are no others. Plural marriage emerged. Now you see on the screen Joseph Smith's first wife, Emma. Historical accounts vary, but apparently Smith had somewhere between 28 and 84 wives, the youngest 14 years old. And God gave a revelation that Emma was to accept this polygamy and cleave to Joseph or the Lord would kill her. So that's like um, submit or else. Brigham Young, who took over after Joseph Smith died, had 21 wives and fathered 57 children by them. So polygamy was alive and well back during those days. Trouble necessitated constant traveling. In fact, it seemed like in those early years, wherever the Mormons went, trouble followed them. They went to Kirtland, Ohio, stayed there for a while. Trouble caused them to move on to Independence, Missouri. Trouble emerged again. They moved on to Navo, Illinois. Trouble escalated there as well. And here, the uh, dissident Mormons published grievances against Joseph Smith in the Nauvoo Expositor. This is the first and last edition of this newspaper. There you have it, right on the screen. And they were criticizing Joseph Smith over two matters. One was the uh, church finances, and second was the matter of polygamy. Well, as you can imagine, this did not sit well with Joseph Smith. And so Joseph Smith and his team retaliated by destroying the printing press. This sent Joseph Smith to jail. And if you see the black and white photo towards the upper left here, this is an actual photograph of the room where he was put. But then there was a mob that formed outside the jail that ended up storming the jail. Gunfire erupted. Smith was shot. And here you see a sketch of him uh, in his last moments as he is shot. Uh, historical accounts that... Uh, he actually picked up a six-shooter and, and started firing off a few shots himself and took a few people with him. And so this was the end of Joseph Smith. I do want to point out something very important. Sometimes when I'm talking to Mormons, you know, we, we talk about how in Christianity the, uh, the New Testament apostles were willing to give up their lives in support of the truth. They died in defending the truth. And sometimes I've had Mormons tell me that, uh, well, Joseph Smith did the same. Well, it's really not the same. You know, Joseph Smith was in jail and a mob attacked, and he wasn't in the process of defending anything. I mean, he was just, there was a bunch of gunfire, and he himself picked up a gun and started firing back. What you have in the New Testament apostles is a situation where they were threatened to recant their views or die, basically. And they refused to recant. It's not just them, but their family members as well suffered greatly. Brigham Young takes over after Joseph Smith died. Here you see a picture of him. And even though this is not a good photograph below, you can actually see uh, some of the Mormons trekking towards uh, Utah or Salt Lake City. Uh, he led 80,000 Mormons on horseback and uh, covered wagons and so forth. About 6,000 people died en route, so it was a pretty tough journey. But they finally arrived where they intended to arrive by 1847. Polygamy soon ended. During this time, Utah was seeking statehood. But they were told by the government, you know, you can't have statehood and have polygamy. You've got to get rid of polygamy. And this is kind of a quick summary, but the bottom line is the fourth president, Wilfred Woodruff, of the Mormon Church, back in 1890, had a revelation to the effect that polygamy was to officially end. And, uh, you know, today it's mostly ended, but uh, there's estimates of uh, 30,000 or more polygamists still living in the Utah mountains. And uh, what we're told is if they are caught, they are excommunicated. Now, I want to draw a distinction here, if I might. Uh, I'm sure that some of you have heard of the, the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. 
Have you seen them in the newspaper? I'm not sure they're in the newspaper as much here as where I am in Texas, but this is a cultic group that was like an offshoot of the Mormon church, and they are polygamists. And uh, they've got a compound in El Dorado, Texas. I actually had the time to spend several hours with Irene Spencer, who was one of the women in this group. And she's no longer with the group. She left the group, and she's been exposing what's been going on. And anyway, uh, it was really heartbreaking to talk with her. Uh, she talked about how uh, she was in a situation where there was like a, you know, a dozen wives of one husband, and how difficult that is. You see, each one of the wives does emotionally bond with her husband. And she talked about how difficult it is for you to know that the husband to whom you have bonded is sleeping with another person that night, without getting explicit. And also, the practical difficulties of raising a family in that kind of situation. I mean, you've got the multiple, multiple children, all of whom need to be fed and clothed. Where does the money come from to pay for all of it? Who does all that cooking? I mean, there's just a lot of practical issues that a lot of us don't think about. Very often, it's very difficult for the, the, the man, the head of the household, to actually provide for all of that. But anyway, like I said, that's the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints that's distinct from Mormonism. But nevertheless, it is estimated that there are still some polygamous Mormons up on the mountains. Now, having provided that brief introduction, let's look at some of the doctrines, shall we? And I'm evaluating these doctrines against the scriptures today. We're going to see that there are a number of areas that I believe makes the Mormons depart from the historic Christian faith. Again, this is not to be mean-spirited. This is measuring Mormon teachings against the scriptures. Number one, the Mormon church is the restored church. The Mormon church is the restored church. Uh, allegedly, total apostasy engulfed the early church, and uh, the Mormon church has restored what was lost. Very often, Mormons will point to certain passages that they think support this idea. For example, I think about Galatians 1.8, where the Apostle Paul talks to the Galatians about believing in another gospel a legalistic gospel. But that really doesn't refer to a total apostasy, does it? I mean, Paul was talking about one church in the first century, the Galatian church. So that's not really a good verse for that. I think also about Acts 20, where Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and he says, men will arise from within your own church and will draw disciples after them, distorting the truth. Uh, but you know what? That's not a good verse for a total apostasy either, is it? Paul was dealing with one church, the Ephesian church, back in the first century. So my point is, is that uh, even though certain verses are cited in support of the idea that there was a total apostasy, I don't think that uh, in context they have any good verses to support that. Anyway, the Mormon church does claim to have restored the priesthoods. I'm referring specifically to the Aaronic and the Melchizedek priesthoods. He has also um, restored the prophets and the apostles. And as well, he has restored the true gospel. Now I want to pause and just uh, raise an issue with you. When you're talking about prophets and apostles, um, is it true that we have to have those in the church today? And is it true that without that, there can be no true church? You know, I'm thinking about Ephesians 2.20, for example, which tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. The foundation's already been built. Once the foundation is built, it is built upon. You don't continue building what's already built. So the prophets and the apostles have done their thing, and now the church is building on the foundation of what they have given us. I also think about, for example, uh, which of the Mormon apostles today claims to have witnessed the resurrected Christ? Is that not a requirement for an apostle? 1 Corinthians 9.1. What about the signs of an apostle? 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. The signs of an apostle where they are to do miracles. The apostles raise people from the dead and so forth. What Mormon can lay claim to that? What about the, uh, the names that are inscribed of the apostles on the New Jerusalem, that city in heaven, according to Revelation chapter 21? My point to you is that even though uh, Mormons say they had the restored prophets and apostles, um, I don't think Scripture lines up with that. All right, let's move on. Number two, the Bible is the Word of God, but only insofar as it is translated correctly. 
what this boils down to fundamentally is faulty transmission. They believe that large portions of the Bible have been lost and that there's been errors introduced by unscrupulous scribes. Uh, in fact, Mormon apostle Orson Pratt went so far as to ask, who in his right mind could, for one moment, suppose the Bible in its present form to be a perfect guide? Who knows that even one verse of the Bible has escaped pollution? Now wait, just pause just for a moment. I'm, I'm going to critique all this a little bit later, but as I'm moving along, things come to my mind and I must share them. You know, how can you trust the Book of Mormon if this is true? I say that because the Book of Mormon plagiarizes extensively from the Bible. There's over 27,000 words taken directly from the King James Version in the Book of Mormon. So it seems to me that um, you're saying something bad about the Book of Mormon, too, if you're saying, who knows if you can trust a single you know, verse. What I often like to do when I'm dealing with the Mormon is, before I even share from the Bible, I ask him which verse or verses cannot be trusted, and I will avoid those for the rest of our session. And if they cannot share a single verse, the rest of the Bible is fair game. That's just my policy. I think that's a fair question to ask. Uh, the Bible is viewed as not being totally trustworthy, whereas the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on earth. Interestingly, the inspired version translated by Joseph Smith has no such errors. The inspired version translated by Joseph Smith has no such errors. Basically, Joseph Smith took the King James Version and altered it. He corrected it. He revised it. He altered it. He added stuff into it and took other stuff out of it. He even inserted a prophecy of himself in Genesis 50, that seer will I bless and his name shall be called Joseph. Now look, folks, I smell a rat here, okay? You just don't do this to the Word of God. He's taking upon himself the authority to do what even Jesus wouldn't do. You don't see Jesus change in the Word of God. You find Jesus saying the Word of God stands forever. It will never pass away. And yet he's changing and correcting the text, and it just took him three years. And he didn't even know Hebrew or Greek. And that's in contradiction to, or, or contradistinction at least, to the King James team, involving many of the world's finest scholars at that time, who took many years in translating the original translation. Number four, the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on earth. The Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on earth. Uh, supposedly, it's an account of God's dealings with the original inhabitants of the American continent from about uh, 2200 B.C. to uh, 400 A.D., approximately. Joseph Smith, as I told you, translated it from golden plates by using a seer stone. But Mormons will also tell you that the Bible prophesies about the Book of Mormon. I've just given one example here in Ezekiel 37. There's a reference to two sticks, allegedly the Bible and the Book of Mormon. But if you look at the context, it's very clear that the Book of the Mormon is nowhere present there. In fact, the text goes on to tell us that it's referring to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. You see, following Solomon's death, uh, the nation split into two parts, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And the text goes on to tell us that the day is coming soon when they will be reunited again. So this is talking about the reuniting of the two kingdoms. It doesn't have anything to do with the Book of Mormon alongside the Bible. Uh, number five, God was once a mortal man who continually progressed to become a God, an exalted man. So God was once a mortal man just like me. He passed through the school of earthly life and eventually became God. Mormon general authority Milton Hunter said that God the Eternal Father was once a mortal man who passed through a school of earth life similar to that through which we are now passing. He became God, an exalted being, through obedience to the same eternal gospel truths that we are given opportunity today to obey. So basically what the Father has done, you and I can do as well. The Father is viewed as, a tangible, as having a tangible body of flesh and bones. Milton Hunter said, God, the eternal Father, our Father in heaven, is an exalted, perfected, and glorified personage 
having a tangible body of flesh and bones. Uh, they have a number of verses they cite in support of this. For example, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says that man was created in the image of God. Now, Adam was physical. Therefore, since Adam was created in the image of God, God must be physical. Of course, that's not what that means. Uh, to be created in the image of God means that in a finite way, we reflect some of the incommunicable attributes or some of the, you know, like love and relationability, rationality, these kinds of attributes in a very finite way, kind of like the, the moon uh, reflects the sun, you see. This idea of uh, God being having a, a physical body as a result of this verse is nowhere to be found in the context. Uh, Exodus 33.11 speaks about how Moses spoke to God face to face. So God must have a face and be physical. Now, we think that that's an anthropomorphism. I mean, you know, Christians look at this and they say, this is just a way of indicating that you're intimate with God. You're, you're in God's presence. It doesn't indicate that God really has a, a physical face or a physical body. And then in John 14, 9, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was physical, therefore the Father is physical. And so these are some of the kinds of verses that Mormons will go to in demonstrating their case. Well, we're out of time today, but we'll continue with Dr. Ron Rhodes on Mormonism on our next program. And by the way, you can get the whole series on Mormonism from Dr. Ron Rhodes and many other related resources at evidenceandanswers.org. We appreciate you joining us for Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrin, and it's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and